are so, so grateful. We praise your name. We worship you. And we will continue our worship of you as we open our Bibles and learn more about you and your beautiful creation. So speak through me to put the spotlight on you, as always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Get your Bibles out and turn to the easiest book in the Bible to find, which is, of course, Genesis. Genesis. And the easiest chapter in the book of the Bible to find, chapter 1. Very good. Genesis 1, are we up here? Okay. I hate to do this. What button do I press to get this on? I can do it, Dave. Which one is it? Is it? I just use this an awful lot. Anyways, Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. You should be able to see that up here, I believe, right? There we go. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Everybody there? We should do a contest. Close your Bibles, then open to Genesis chapter 1 and see who gets there first, right? <laughs> okay. All right. Matt Newman's there with his iPad, looks like. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thanks, Dave. That's not in there, by the way. Thanks, Dave, is not in the original Hebrew. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. This morning we'll look at creation day one. And as always, we'll just kind of go through this, well, not always, but we'll just look at this verse by verse. Verse one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now what's interesting is that the Bible begins with the assumption that God has eternally existed before anything was ever created. It's in the beginning, God. So he is a pre-existing eternal God and he is a creator of everything. And last week I shared with you what Herbert Spencer discovered. Remember this? He's an English biologist and sociologist. He discovered that all reality that exists in the universe can be contained in five categories. Time, force, action, space, and matter. Okay? This is what we see in this first verse. In the beginning, there's the beginning of time. It was created right there. See that? God is the force. Created is the action. The heavens, is, of course, is space. And the earth is matter. That's all reality that, that exists in the universe. Exists right there. So Genesis 1.1 is a concise, simple verse that only in the mind of God brilliantly sums up creation. But what we want to kind of look at this morning is, well, how did God create everything? Because that's kind of what the text does. Because Genesis 1-1 is just a general overview, kind of like a thesis statement. The rest, verses 2 through 5, explain how he does create first day. 
well, how, what did he do? Well, let me give you some, just listen to these verses. You can write them down. I did not put them up there. But you might recognize this in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, time, and the, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, obviously, who is the Word? Jesus, okay. And so, in the beginning, the Word, through the Word, all things came into being. And nothing came in, he's very clear, apart from him, nothing came into being. Apart from Jesus Christ, nothing came into being that has come into being. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Psalm 33 Verses 6 and verse 9. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Verse 9. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. And that is the dream of every father that has children. You speak, and it's done. There's obedience, right? You command, and it stands fast further proof that no man is God. Colossians 1.16, for by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So we look at these other verses, it gives us an idea of kind of what happened on that first day. If you look at Genesis, well, we did verses 1, uh, 1, verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, and 26. In Genesis, you're going to read this. God said. And what he said was created. You take all these verses into account that we just read. We interpret Genesis 1, 1 like this. With no prior existing matter and no prior existing energy, God the Son spoke and everything in the universe was created. That's what happened. This is what we call, you may be familiar with this in the Latin, ex nihilo, N-I-H-I-L-O, bringing something into existence out of nothing. That's Genesis 1.1. And it began with God creating the very first thing was time, space, and matter. And you know what? Those are the building blocks of the universe. Now Genesis 1.2 explains in greater detail how God created everything. Look at, look at verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now it says the earth was formless and void. Now if you just get a, a, a have some Bible study tools and so on, you can translate this verse and look at that the phrase is translated an empty, lifeless waste. That's what formless and void means. An empty, empty, lifeless waste place. In other words, the earth is desolate and it's unpopulated. God has yet to shape it. And that's the first condition of his initial creation after God spoke. Then it says, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The second thing we see is that God created what? 
darkness. See that? He created darkness. You want to write this verse down, Isaiah 45, 7, you can. It says, he is the one forming light and creating darkness. There was nothing, and God spoke, and there was everything. And there was darkness. Now, darkness is, a prominent, is prominent in the creation process at this point, because what you notice is God has not yet created light. And the earth then is this somewhat shapeless and uninhabited form, and it's engulfed in absolute darkness. The darkness blankets the surface of the deep. Now the question is this, what is the deep? Well, deep is a synonym used in scripture for the word sea, S-E-A, or think of it as water, okay? And later in verse two, he calls the deep water. So here's what we have so far on the first day. The earth is engulfed in universal darkness and covered with water. This is exactly what the psalmist declared. Psalm 104, verses five and six read this. He established the earth upon his foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep, or with water as with a garment. In fact, it says the waters were standing above the mountains. So in this shapeless void, you know, this formless thing, there's this matter, and it's kind of like mountains, but it's completely covered with water and in darkness. It, and like a potter who takes unformed clay and begins to mold it into a beautiful creation, God takes the raw material of his creation and he's beginning to form it. This is what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 5, that the earth, and you might want to write this down, by the way, the earth was formed out of water, and this is very significant to remember that. The earth was formed out of water. Why is that significant for us to remember? The original earth, the very first earth, was formed out of water. The second earth, the earth we live on now, was formed out of water, which came from what? A flood. It engulfed everything, and God reformed the world. The world that we live in now was very different than the first world. But he's forming it out of water. Now, Proverbs also gives us insight as to what happened in the first day of creation. On Proverbs 8, 27, it reads this. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. So God's inscribing a circle on the surface of the waters. So what does Psalm 104 and Proverbs 8 tell us? On the first day, God formed matter into a spherical or a circular shape. And he secured its foundations so it would not totter. And this is a second condition of his initial creation. Finally, it goes on to say, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, the word moving is also translated hovering. You may have that in your translation. So hovering over this unformed, lifeless material, engulfed in water, and steeped in darkness was the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And Deuteronomy 32.11 gives us a picture of what hovering means, and this is a, such an important picture. It says this, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them, he carried them on his pinions. 
So the image we have here of this word hovering from the Bible is one of those in Deuteronomy 32 of a young baby eagles who are utterly dependent upon the care of their parents to survive. Without them, they'll never grow and develop. And that's precisely the imagery here. The Holy Spirit is hovering over this undeveloped, unformed, lifeless mass of time or of matter and space, covered by water, engulfed in darkness. And it's a very important point that Moses puts in here regarding the Spirit of God. Because what we see here is that God is personally involved in his creation. His hand is never lifted from the elements. His hand is never lifted from the working of the material order. This is what Job proclaimed in Job 26, 13. By his spirit, capital S, he adorned the heavens. So we find it, the Holy Spirit intimately involved in creation. Job gives us further insight. He tells us that the Spirit of God gives life, Job 33, 4. The Spirit of God has made me, and, his, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So what does this tell us about creation at this point in time? What was the Spirit of God doing? Well, he was supervising creation, bringing order, providing the energy to shape and bring life in development. He was not just hovering over the water, doing nothing. Everything we know about the Holy Spirit was true today, was true in the beginning, because he never changes, and he is giving life and energy in, in developing this earth. In fact, Henry Morris writes this. He says this. There, though no doubt oversimplified, and he's, by the way, I'm, when we talk about this stuff, I'm going to a theologian. I'll give you what the Bible says. I'll go into some science. I am not a scientist. I've never talked to my wife more than this week. Please explain to me the physics of this, Erica. What does this mean? What does that mean? And so on. We'll get into that later. But she has a scientific mind. I do not. But Henry Morris is a, a, a scientist, and he writes this. There's no, though no doubt oversimplified, this tremendous creative act of the Godhead might be summarized by saying that the nuclear forces maintaining the integrity of matter were activated by the Father when he created the elements of the space-mass-time continuum. I like reading this stuff because it makes me sound smart, but please know better. I'm like, what does this mean? The gravitational forces were activated by the Spirit. This is what he believes happened. When he brought form and motion to the initially static and formless matter. And the electromagnetic forces were activated by the word of the Son of God when he called light into existence out of the darkness. So of course God is one and all three persons of the God had actually participated in all parts of the creation and continue to function in the maintenance of the universe so it created. So he says, so the Father is the source of all things. That's verse 1. The Spirit is the energizer of all things. That's verse 2. In verse 3, the Son of God or the Word is the revealer of all things. This is the third condition of his initial creation. Now, what happens creatively from God after the original material is brought into existence? That's verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was, of course, light. So God speaks light into existence. 
Now for us, when we think of the source of light, we will look outside there and we see light, and of course we know where does that light come from? The sun. And at night, if it's a clear night, we can sit there and look up and there is light in the sky. And those, of course, come from stars and the moon, exactly. But notice this. Genesis 1-3. God said that there be light and there is light. The sun and the stars... Where are they? They haven't been created until day four. And yet there's light. But where did this light come from? And Paul tells us, told Timothy and tells us, that God lives in light. In 1 Timothy 6.16, he says, God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see. The psalmist writes that God, do you know this, dresses himself in light. Psalm 104, 2. God, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. And you take it even one step further, the Apostle John tells us that God himself is light. This is a message that we've heard from him and declare to you, that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. So God... The one who exists, he exists in uncreated light, brought into existence, created light to exist in the place where there was only darkness. So God is the source of light on day one. In fact, he's a source of light for the first three days of creation. And remember, he is the source of light in the new heavens and the new earth that will come at the very end of existence. Remember Revelation 22.5? There will be no more night, right? There will be no, there will not, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So here we have now God speaking and we have darkness, we have water covering this mattery mass of, of stuff, and now we have light. And all this is done in a sequence of time. We have the Holy Spirit hovering over those waters, energizing it, and so on. Look at verse four. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now, the word good reveals God's stamp of approval on what he had created. And so it's a, it's a neat image if you stop and think about it. It's as if God paused for a moment from his work, took a step back, looked at his creation, and kind of nodded in approval at this point in time. Yep, this is, this is good. And we'll see that God does this a lot. The phrase God saw and then it was good is used seven times in Genesis chapter 1. And then God makes the first of three separations. But there's a reason for this. Uh, Douglas Kelly comments, he says, the speaking into existence of the created light is the first of a series of three separations accomplished by the creator, which were essential to making the chaos, which is the universe, it was chaotic, and he's the one who brought order into a cosmos. On day one, he said, Light separates day and night. On day two, the firmament or the heavens separates the upper waters from the earth, constituting an atmosphere or breathing space. On day three, 
The waters below the heavens are collected into seas, the separated from the dry land. These three separations show the mighty hand of God shaping and organizing a dark, watery mass into the direction of a beautiful garden, which is called earth. A place that's fit for plants and animals and mankind. Verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. So with the creation of light, what do we see happening here? He establishes a cycle of days and nights. So there's periods of light, and there's periods of darkness. Now you know what that means? It means the earth immediately began rotating on its axis on day one. You see that? Let me show you once again in greater detail what God was doing. In speaking of the greatness of God during creation, Job writes this in Job 26, verse 7 and verse 10. It says, He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Verse 10, He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters, the boundary of light and darkness. So on day one, we have a dark chaos. It's being secured and organized and formed and rotating on its axis. As God begins to shape the universe, he turns the light on. That's what he does. And he gives light and darkness names. He calls the light day and the darkness night. And since the first day, there has been light and there has been darkness. There has been day and there has been night. And that constant cycle of light and darkness, day and night, has defined the character of this universe in the earth since day one. And verse five ends with the completion of the first day ever. So in review, what did God do in the first day of creation? He created the heavens and the earth, the waters, darkness and light, And now, while the Genesis text does not mention this, other verses give us an indication of something else probably created on day one. On Job Job 38, in fact, why don't you ever, yeah, you can go there. Middle of the Bible, Job, it's a pretty big book. You, You should be able to find it. Job 38. Job 38, verses 4 through 7. Again, think of it this way. If, but don't remember this. If I'm God, there's light coming out of me, and I have my, quote unquote, hands in this dark, watery mass, and I'm shaping it. And the Spirit of God is, is going over this and shaping it, and the light is coming to me. And so on this side of this earth is light, on this side, it's darkness and it, I'm turning it on its axis, I hang it on nothing in a 24-hour period. That's what he's doing. Okay? And of course, what happens when he turns on the light? Darkness flees. Okay? Now, what else did God create? Verse 4, Job 38. 
Where were you? This is God speaking to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, of course, that tells us what? That's creation, the foundations of the earth. Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? So he's measuring it, by the way, <laughs> this creation. He's very specific. I guess you could say God might be a little OCD for you OCD people out there. Very precise. Since you know, or who stretched the line on it, and again, the line of it probably being the um, horizon and so on. On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? Again, the foundations are being set. Watch this, verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Here God speaks of laying the foundation of the earth, sinking its bases, and laying its cornerstone. And the foundations of the earth means that original, formless, void earth that had not yet been shaped into its final form, then the sons of God who are already there were also created on day one. And who are the sons of God? Angels. Remember this? We went over this. Angels. And as God creates on the successive days, there the angels are worshiping him in joy. They're shouting for joy. In fact, the psalmist writes this. Again, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch up the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the cloud his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits. His ministers a fire of flame, or flame of fire. You who laid the foundation of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. And here we discover the shining of God's light during the creation process and the angels just before referring to laying the foundation of the earth. And if the shining of God's light refers to Genesis 1-3, let there be light, which occurred on day one, and it was followed by the laying of the foundations of the earth mentioned in day three, obviously it could be that the angels were created after that shining light but before the foundations of the earth. Either way, somewhere between day one and day three, and probably day one, the angels were created. I think it's day one because they're gonna be worshiping him during this beautiful creative act of God because that's what angels do. Now there's another question that you all kind of just kind of curiosity wanna know. Kind of, well, when did this all happen? <laughs> okay? And last week I told you, don't know if you remember this, that the Hebrew word for day is the word yom, Y-O-M, and it refers to a 24-hour day, or a solar day. And whenever yom is modified by a number in the Bible, universally, without exception, it always refers to a normal 24-hour solar day. And in this context, day refers to the 24-hour period, which basically refers to a full rotation of the earth on its axis, called evening and morning. And this allows us, and this is interesting, to get a timeline of when this all happened. And uh, we know from the creation of the universe, the creation of man was six days, right? So that's six 24-hour periods. In Genesis 5, we find the genealogy of Adam to Noah in the flood, and it totaled 1,656 years. Genesis 11 gives us the chronology from the flood to Abraham, totaling 225 years. So you put this up here, 
This is what we get. From creation of the flood, 1,656 years, and of course from the flood to Abraham, 225, you get 1881. Again, I remind you, it was my understanding, when I took this job, there would be no math, but I have a wife who's good in that. Now, starting in Genesis 12 with Abraham, go all the way to 2 Chronicles. You have the chronology from Abraham to the Babylonian captivity. And it breaks down this way. And you might not be able to see it, but I tried to fit it all on one screen, but here we can see it all. There was a course for 30 years in Egypt. Remember that? 40 years in the wilderness. Seven years conquering Canaan. 350 years of judges. 110 years under the king Saul, David, and Solomon. 350 years under the divided kingdom of Judah and Israel. 70 years under Babylonian captivity. And 140 years to return and rebuild Jerusalem. And you get 1,497 years, or roughly 1,500 years. You with me so far? Good. And of course you have this, 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and beginning of the New Testament, called the intertestamental period, okay? And so you take all this and you add it up. You have 1881, creation to Abraham, 1497, Abraham to the end of the Old Testament, and 400 years, the intertestamental period, and you get 3,778 years. Well, guess what? If you add this to our current year, we're looking at roughly 6,000 years ago. Okay? Now, according to the Bible, this is what we're saying, this series is what the Bible says about, the universe is roughly 6,000 years old. And good luck getting people to believe you on that one today. Because today, evolutionists mock this number. But hear me on this. Prior to Charles Darwin, any educated man who suggested that mankind was over 6,000 years old was seen as a fool. All historical records fit into that 6,000 years. From European history to Egyptian history and historical records, they all go back no further than 6,000 years. Did you know that? I'll explain to you why you didn't know that in a moment. But what about modern science? See, research has been done, of course, on the concept of the speed of light. And how fast is the speed of light? Anyone remember? Good, I'm glad you make me, make me feel smarter, because I kind of knew this one, but I'm not a scientific person. My wife would know. She had got called to work this morning. But in kilometers, the speed of light is generally accepted as being up to, rounded up to 300,000 kilometers a second. We know it as 186,000 miles a second. Now we know a light year is a distance light travels in a year. Thus a star might come into being a million light years away from the earth, but couldn't actually be observed until a million years later because it would take that long for the starlight to reach the earth from outer space. Does that make sense? The star over here it travels 186,000 miles a second, and it's a million years away, therefore it's going to take a million years for us to be able to see that light of that star. Okay? Now if that's the case, then the solar system has to be immensely older than a few thousand years indicated by the Genesis chronologies, right? 
But here's the thing, and I know you probably don't know this, and if you do, God bless you, and I can have you come up here and help me with this sermon. Okay, and I actually talked to my wife about this, and she didn't know it, so it makes me feel kind of smart compared to her. This isn't recorded, right? She didn't hear me say that? Okay. Research was conducted um, by many people, but particularly recently, an Australian scientist named Barry Setterfield. And he published a book in 1983 that disproves the argument about the speed of light. He writes, arguments that the speed of light has been slowing down and thus traveled much more rapidly in the past would indicate a very young universe in terms of thousands rather than billions of years. And he wasn't alone in this, okay? Between 1880 and 1941, there were over 50 articles found in the journal called Nature that alone addressed the topic of decline in the actual measured values of, of light speed. Have you ever heard that the speed of light was slowing down or was decaying? Rodney, you want to come up here and finish this for me? No? No, you're good? Okay. They call it decaying, and there's a reason why they call it. Now, Sutterfield, and keep that date in mind, 1941. Don't forget that. Sutterfield proposed that the the decay in the speed of light in his writings called the velocity of light in the age of the universe. So he's one who brought it up. He actually wrote an article on this, or a book on it. And it makes perfect sense because of the irrefutable laws of science. Think about it. And this is where I sound really smart. The law of thermodynamics. The the first law of thermodynamics is that no new energy or matter is being created. But the second law of thermodynamics, you know as the law of entropy. That makes sense? Things don't get better, they get worse. Things go from not order but to death. They go to chaos, okay? That matter degenerates into a more disordered state. In other words, I have a, if I had a brand new car and I put it in a garage and left it there for 100 years, what would happen to that car? Deteriorate, eventually you rust, right? So things deteriorate. Now in simplest terms, what this means, and by the way, that is a These are solid, bedrock, unarguable laws of science, the laws of thermodynamics. In simplest terms, everything in the universe is decaying, is what they discovered, which would include, if it's everything, guess what? The speed of light. And according to Setterfield, the first careful measurement of the speed of light was made by a Danish astronomer, this is crazy, a guy named Romer in 1675. And then by an English astronomer, Bradley, in 1728. It's been measured many times since then, and it's, they say it's reached an equilibrium. It stopped slowing down at roughly 300,000 kilometers a second, or 186,000 miles a second. And the data indicate that the speed of light in 1675 was about 2.6 times faster than today. And they continued to decline until 1960. And everything called atomic clocks, I have no idea what they are, it just sounds cool. But they began to be employed to measure it. And what this means as it pertains to the whole scope of history since creation, well, 
This is what it means, and Chuck Missner said this in 1999. He said, there's a Canadian mathematician by the name of Alan Montgomery, and he had a, a, a computer analysis. He reported a computer analysis supporting the Setterfield results. His model indicates that the decay of velocity, or the decay of the speed of light, closely follows what he calls a cosecant squared curve. Now, I can't, can't explain this to you, but the way light travels over long distance is in a straight line. It's more on a curve, okay? But it's been asymptomatic. It hasn't changed since 1958 or roughly 1960. He says, if he is correct, based upon all this data since 1675, they then can project out this. So the speed of light was 10 to 30% faster in the time of Christ twice as fast in the days of Solomon, four times as fast in the days of Abraham, and perhaps more than 10 million times faster prior to 3000 BC. Now, as Setterfield kept charting the speed of light, he worked out a curve, tracing the decay of the velocity of light, and on this basis, Setterfield argues that the earth was created at about 4,040 plus or minus 100 years. If the speed of light has indeed decayed along with everything else, then the most basic empirical measurement of the age of the solar system would fit precisely into the genealogical chronology of Genesis. You just take those same figures, put them on a curve, you have light being almost instantaneously created 6,000 years ago, based upon this data that is scientifically proven. Now, assuming that's correct, that would explain why the dates derived from various types of radioactive measurements on physical geological elements such as the half-life of uranium-238 decaying into lead over millions of years would be skewed. In other words, carbon dating. All of that, if you don't take into consideration the, the decreased decay speed of light, all those measurements are off. You understand that? Now, to help me, to help you, remember this? An atom, right? This is what? The nucleus. Proton and neutron. And flying around in these circles are what? Electrons. Exactly. Did you know this? The speed of an electron the velocity of an electron in its orbit around the nucleus is proportional to the speed of light. So if the light's slowing down, guess what else is slowing down? Electrons going around the atom. In other words, to simplify it, everything changes. And what appears to be old isn't old at all. If you understand this scientific proven fact about the decrease of the speed of light. Therefore, radiometric ages in rocks, i.e. carbon dating, all of this stuff, meteorites and other astronomical objects, they all align within a 6,000 year framework. But you have never heard of this, right? Has anybody ever heard this? Of course you haven't, I'm gonna tell you why. Tom Shipley's an interesting guy. I discovered him this week. Tom Shipley was a man who is a man. He grew up in an, un, in, a, 
non-Christian home, went through the you know, kindergarten and elementary school, middle school, high school, which of course is steeped in Darwinian evolution, or naturalistic evolution, okay? And he was a, a disciple of all the information that was fed into him. What's unique about him is that he's a science nerd. He had normal friends, but he always had a science mind and liked science. He'd read science books. And he bought into Darwinian evolution and that everything was not thousands of year, years old, but what? Millions to billions of years old. And he's had an inquisitive mind. So he enters college. The very thing that college is supposed to do, it actually did for him. All really college is supposed to do is hopefully teach you how to think, probably for the first time in your life. Because all our current education system does is teach you how to memorize information. Spit it back out in a test and you're good, right? But college didn't teach me how to think, theology did, by the way. So anyways, he goes to college and he starts taking classes and he learns about debating and arguing. He learns about what is called assumptions and presuppositions. He learns to critically think. So he takes that newfound discovery of assumptions and presuppositions and critical thinking, applies it to his scientific mind and begins to look into evolution and realizing it is absolutely absurd to believe that just over billions and billions of years that anything would be possible. He starts believing in and looking at the raw data, does some work, and through studying creation becomes a believer. He wrote this. A guy by the name of Raymond Burge, you can look him up, he was a highly respected chairman of the physics department at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, and he had, Raymond Burge had read some of the 50 articles I mentioned earlier between 1880 and 1941 that were written that proved the decline of the speed of light. Burge himself observed that the speed of light decreased steadily until 1940. I told you it didn't stop till 1960, right? But what happened in 1940? Well, in 1940, Burge all of a sudden wrote an article entitled The General Physical Constants as of August 1940 with details on the velocity of light only. And Burge began this article saying this, this paper is being written on request. And at this time on request, a belief in any significant variability of the constants of nature is fatal to the spirit of science as science is now understood. In other words, everything is constant. Nothing is changing. Evolution needs that. Even though the data was showing that the speed of light was slowing down, they said, no, you're not going to report on that. You're going to write a paper that's going to say it's the same. It's constant. The people above him forced him to write this. Now these words from this man, for whatever reason he wrote them, they shut down the debate of the speed of light in 1940. Burge had previously recognized, as in others, that the speed of light was changing. And, if that, and it was quite necessary that some of the other constants in the universe were also changing. And this was evident not, but this was evidently not to be allowed. Whether it was true or not, and so the values for the various constants were declared constant. And that was that. In other words, the speed of light didn't slow down. Electrons didn't slow down. 
Nothing changed. And this was not challenged until an article was written by C.L. Strong in 1975. So for roughly 34 years, any serious questioning and research about the speed of light slowing down was shut down in 1941 due to the recognition of the implications for evolutionary dogma. And so here we see a clear example of how commitment to evolutionary faith and dogma has impeded scientific process by decades. And for all practical purposes, this impediment is still there today, 75 years later. Now, we as a church know of the creation evolution controversy, right? We've kind of discussed this. As I go through Genesis, I'm finding myself emerged in it. But are we aware of this? Because Shipley continues. He writes, we are aware of the great Darwinian propaganda machine of our government, educational establishment. It enforces, and this is what you get in public schools, an atheistic evolutionist orthodoxy with oppressive rigor among its faculty at all levels, especially at the university and graduate levels. Those who disagree with the official naturalistic evolutionary orthodoxy, in other words, you don't believe in evolution as proposed by Charles Darwin, you're punished. That is, those who contradict evolutionary orthodoxy or who simply express doubt about it or even don't promote it enthusiastically enough are terminated from their jobs. They're demoted, subjected to campaigns of vilification, and so forth. Empirical data and information are routinely censored. That is, information which conflicts with the established orthodoxy. The general public has no awareness whatsoever of the state of affairs in academia. I do, I was there. Or that our media are in substantial complicity with them. Keeping a lid on this inconvenient truth. For example, in 1987, Barry Satterfeld and Trevor Norman of Flinders University in Australia, they published a work called Atomic Constants, Light and Time. Now, Helen Setterfield, obviously the wife of Barry Setterfield, this is what she wrote. And when I discovered this stuff, it was really, really, really disturbing because there's a lot of information on there about this, what happened to these people that just don't believe in evolutionary thinking. Helen Setterfield writes that her husband and his friend, they were to speak at a seminar at the university in Australia. When it was discovered they were creationists, Flinders University threatened Trevor Noman with his job and informed Barry Setterfeld that he was no longer welcome to use any resources there but the library. Don't drop your jaw. That is light compared to what happened to some other people. Eventually, Norman was fired. Tom Van Flandern, a PhD from Yale in astronomy, specializing in celestial mechanics for 20 years, from 1963 to 1983, was a research astronomer and chief of the celestial mechanics branch at the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C., released the results of some tests showing that the rate of ticking of the atomic clock was measurably slowing down when compared with a dynamic clock. Tom Van Flandern was terminated with, from his work in the, in the institution shortly thereafter. 
Let me explain to you why. To help you understand this. If there's a, 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 do I go into it here or not? You know what a quasar is? Bunch of stars that's the farthest way that we can see, okay? And they say it's, it's 10 billion light years away. Now, speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. Do you know how far it goes in a year? Six trillion miles. We're saying, though, if it's 10 billion years away, 10 million light years away, it would take it, that star would be 10 billion years old, right? But what if the speed of light was twice as fast? How long, how long would it take for that light to get here? Half of the time, right? Not 10 billion years, but what? Five billion years. What if it's four times as fast? Or what if it's 10 million times as fast? Then all of a sudden, the universe and the earth aren't as old as evolution requires it to be. Does that make sense? Okay, you following me? Now you begin to see why this, they were putting the kibosh on all this. Okay? In 2004, astronomer Dr. Gilmer Gonzalez, do you ever recognize that name by chance? I did, and I, I, I thank God for my memory. He was quoted in the book, The Case for Crater by Lee Strobel. Okay? He wrote the book called Privileged Planet. Basically, that, that it's obvious, he's an astronomer, that the earth is, is, is positioned in such a way to be able to see the glory of God and see all things. Okay? And can observe, and, and so it proves the existence of God or an intelligent designer. It says, after its release, his book, Privileged Planet, Iowa State University religious studies professor Hector Avalos, a faculty advisor to the campus Atheist and Agnostic Society, began publicly campaigning against Dr. Gonzalez and his work. Although Dr. Gonzalez had never introduced intelligent design into his classes, Avalos helped spirit a faculty petition urging all faculty at Iowa State University to uphold the integrity of our university by rejecting efforts to portray intelligent design as science. And we're not even talking about God, folks. We're not even talking about that. We're just talking about intelligent design. In 2007, Gonzalez was denied tenure at Iowa State University because of his belief in intelligent design. And guess what? He is no longer employed at Iowa State University. In 2012, David Coppedge was fired from NASA because of his religious belief in intelligent design. There are plenty of other, I discovered, of, of people that are creationists or believe in intelligent design that have been let go or put aside, marginalized. Their work has been suppressed or flat out uh, stored away and forgotten, the raw data, because it's too much of a threat to Darwinian evolution. And what you find is that this is a typical reaction to, of the great Darwinian propaganda machine. You report data that contradicts the reigning paradigm of establishment science, i.e. evolution, even if it is just mere raw data, you do that, you're gone. It seems not to matter your rank or tenure or accomplishments, as Shipley writes, if your research touches upon the subject of evolution in a manner that negates evolution, Directly or indirectly, your career is in danger. The information that it, 
that gets, the information itself gets ignored or censored. Now, the word that I kept reading in these stories, and we're about done here, uh, was suppression. I kept seeing this word in these stories, these, these professors that have been, were denied or fired or whatever. The suppression of raw data, the suppression of scholarly research, the suppression of scientifically proven findings, etc., etc., etc. Of course, I could not help but remind myself again of Romans 1. Just listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Paul didn't know what he was writing of all the data we would have scientifically. That data is there, okay? It is being suppressed by the government, by the education system, and by media. I showed you, what does that, the Avengers movies, what do they say every came into existence when? The Big Bang. They talk about evolution. That is what is put upon you. It's what you grow up with. And you believe that the earth is billions of billions of years old. And you say, well, what about carbon dating and all of this and so on and so forth? I'm telling you. They can take carbon dating. By the way, carbon dating is about, needs to be pure research. Pure date, pure, a pure product. What I mean by that is that there's, there's carbon and you want it to get it where it's in this fossil, for example, but there's other carbon around it. So you want to get the carbon that's just in that fossil, for example, or else it's contaminated. So in other words, there are things that, that we know, for example, that if you do research on Mount St. Helens when it exploded to create a little bit of a canyon, you do carbon dating on some of that stuff that's in there, and guess what? It says it's millions of years old. Well, that canyon was just created how long ago? Okay? So you get the idea here. It's not the most accurate way of measuring stuff. You throw on the decrease of the speed of light, everything is skewed. Now, the data points clearly to a 6,000 or a young earth, but you won't hear that. Fallen mankind will always suppress the truth about God, including the written record of creation found in the Bible. And what does the church do? We believe that there's, the data's there. Science says it. So we won't believe the creation story. We'll believe in the things I told you last week. Remember theistic evolution or progressive creationism? We're going to take science and merge it with the Bible to make the Bible fit to what science says. They didn't know, I assume, about the decay of the speed of light. There were dinosaur bones, because Shippey writes about this in his article, I think either six or nine states, Montana, South Dakota, something like that, they found dinosaur bones over a period of 20 years or so uh, in, in like, I can't remember, like 32 sites of bones and stuff like that. They did the dating on them. And they came back like in the thousands of years. These were just technicians that did the data. They then took that data and they gave it to their, their bosses. They gave it to the Smithsonian Institute, amongst other places. They did the work, they saw the data. What did they do with it? It went away. Now, you notice in the scientific community, if you were in that field, that that was what was happening. 
But that's one of just many stories of how mankind will suppress the truth to maintain a narrative. In this case, to uphold the great Darwinian propaganda machine of naturalistic evolution. I want you to rest assured that the creation account in Genesis, it is scientifically proven. Okay? And so very appropriately this morning, this is what we do. You praise God for his creation. Amen? Father, we thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for minds that are just so far beyond mine and for people that can write things and make it understandable for someone with a simple intellect like me. <laughs> well, I thank you that science does indeed prove who you are, that you exist. Your creation is exactly how it was recorded in Genesis. We, Father, we thank you for the beautiful creativity you've shown us just in this first day of creation. You created darkness and light and matter and space and time and water. You formed personally the earth. We praise you for that. And may that praise be on our lips this week. May we recall it throughout the week and praise you for your creation. And may we be confident that what we read in the Bible is true and accurate. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a great Sunday.